Welcome to the Rocky Messages Podcast. Rocky is a community of believers that want to know Jesus and love like him. If there's something today you'd like to hear more about, make sure to listen to our weekly podcast called Rocky Unscripted. This is where we take Sunday topics and go even further with conversation, research, and study. But for now, let's take a listen to this week's message. Amen. Go ahead and grab a seat if you're in the room. Niwa Campus, how we doing? You awake? You're good? Oh, yeah, I love it. Fred Campus, how about you? If they didn't make any noise, that was awkward. You know what I'm saying? Uh, we're glad you're with us. Everybody who's hanging out with us online this morning, man, we're glad you're here. Uh, we are in the middle uh, of a series entitled Ephesians. We've been working through the book of Ephesians, which is uh, not so much a book, more of a letter uh, that's written by this guy named Paul, the Apostle Paul, who finds himself in a moment of his life where he's actually been arrested for talking about Jesus too much. He's on house arrest, so he's hanging out in Rome and uh, not really able to leave uh, his house. He could very uh, easily be chained to a, a prison guard there. And so uh, he has a season of his life where he's writing uh, some letters to some churches and to some of his friends. And one of those letters is uh, what we call the book of Ephesians. It's a letter to a church in Ephesus. Uh, and one of the reasons why we, I, I love the, 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 this letter is, one, because Paul is so excited. He is so excited. But also, it's short. It's a shorter letter. It's one of the shorter writings uh, that Paul has, and he packs so much into six uh, chapters. And, and really, if you had to summarize the, the letter, uh, you know, if you, if you could say, Paul, what's the, what's the bottom line? What's the most important thing that you're trying to get across to the church in Ephesus? Here's what I think he would say. I think he'd say something like this. Um, being saved is awesome. I think that's what he'd say. Matt, I just want you to know that being saved is awesome, isn't it? And then he'd say, and God is awesome for saving us. I think that's the bottom line of the letter to the church in Ephesus. Being saved is awesome. If, you, if you're like, Paul, why? Well, why is being saved so awesome? Here's what he'd say. In chapters 1, 2, and 3, he lays out a defense. This is where we've been the last three weeks. In chapter 1, Paul goes, you, you know why being saved is awesome? Because God chose you. He chose you. But before you were even born, God, God chose you, and, and he predetermined that anybody who would believe in him, that, that God would adopt that person into his family, that you would be called the sons and daughters of God, that God, God loves you so much that he, he predestined his response to people if they choose to follow him. So Paul goes, man, God is awesome, and he's awesome for saving you. Being saved is awesome because God chose you. And then you get into chapter 2, and he goes, he, Paul goes, you know why being saved is awesome? Because before you knew Jesus, you were dead. You were lost. And then Jesus found you, and he saved you. And Paul goes, that's why God is awesome. So you've been chosen, and now you've been made alive. And then last week, we get into chapter 3, and Paul says, you know why being saved is awesome? Because God loves you. And Paul goes, man, I pray that you would know, and not just know here, but that you would know here, that you would know that you would know the, the, the height and the length and the depth and the width of God's love. That you would think about that when we needed Jesus to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. I mean, the most pivotal moment in your life and my life was the moments right before the cross when Jesus, who was fully God and fully man, could have fully walked away. And he didn't. He chose and he walked towards you by taking up a cross and dying for your sins and my sins. And Paul goes, that's how much God loves you. 
And so then we get to like the, like the halfway point. That's this week. We are crossing uh, the halfway point, going from chapter three to chapter four. And really the first three chapters, Paul is saying, this is who God is, and this is what he has done for you. This is who you are. And now we get into chapters four, five, and six, and Paul goes, now because of that, this is how we should live. This is what your life should, should be like now. You have received all this goodness from God. This is what God has done. He has chosen you. He has saved you. He loves you. And then Paul, he kind of flips the switch in chapter four, and he goes, because of all of that now, this is how you should live. So if you're a follower of Jesus, this is where we really got to lean in here and go, okay, this is, this is what my life should be like. These are the elements that should mark my life. And if you're here and you don't know Jesus, it's a good week for you to be here because this is a, this is a good week for you to see what the church should be like. This is what things should be like in light of who God is and what he has done for us. And what you'll find is it's not always like that because the church is, is filled with people and people are, are messy, but it doesn't mean we don't try. It doesn't mean we don't work hard. It doesn't mean we don't make every effort to live out the truth of the gospel. And so this is what Paul will say starting in, in chapter four. He's gonna say, listen, the church, the church, is where we begin living out our faith. The church is where we begin living out all of our identities of, of, of who God is and what he has done for us. This is where we start. Now, next week, you come back next week, Paul's going to lean in chapter 5. He's going to talk about the relationships in our lives, what's it look for, like for us in, in, in our marriage and friendships. And, and then we'll get into chapter 6. But Paul says in chapter 4, we start with the church. Now, here's some tension for all of us this morning that that to do this well, to live out those truths in chapters one, two, and three in the life of the church is, is difficult. It's a difficult task because the problem that all of us face, I think all of us face, is that we live in a very fast-paced, easily offended, and what I like to call arena culture. We live in a very fast-paced, easily offended arena culture. And if you don't believe that to be true, I love you enough to just tell you you're wrong. You're wrong. That is the world we live in. More specifically, that is the culture in which we live in the context of our country. And, and let me start with arena culture and I'll work my way backwards. But when was the last time you showed up at a concert? When's the last time you showed up to a, a concert? And as you were walking in, they were like, oh, I'm glad you're here. We actually need somebody on the drums tonight. Man, come on up. And you're like, I don't even play the drums. They go, we don't even care. Just come on up, get on the drums. We're going to be playing to tens of thousands of people tonight, and we cannot be more excited that you're the one who's going to be playing the drums. It never happens. Or the last time you showed up at Coors Field, and I wish this would happen to me. It's never going to happen. But you're kind of walking in, right, to, to the baseball game, and, and you're walking down to your seat, and there's a player on the field. They go, yeah, I think that's Matt. Yo, Matt! You're like, you talking to me? Yeah, talking to you. Hey, we need you at shortstop tonight. <laughs> me? Yeah. I didn't even bring a glove. We got one for you. We got your uniform. We got your glove. We got your cleats. We got everything. Just come down onto the field. Take, take a little warm up because the game starts in 45 minutes. It never happens. I wish it did, but it never will. It never will. It doesn't happen like that. You show up and it's all set up for you. You don't perform. You listen. You don't play. You watch. That's arena culture. And people, if we're not careful, people begin to think that's what the church is like. 
That's what the church is supposed to be. But this is not an event this morning. What you've shown up to is not a place you come and everybody performs for you because you bought a ticket. You didn't even buy a ticket to be here. I mean, we got prime seats down front. No one even sits there. You know what I'm saying? I mean, that's not how it works. This is not a concert and this is not a sporting event. What is this? This is a gathering. This is a family gathering. It is not a you buy a ticket and come and sit and watch what everybody else is doing. This is different. This is different. And here's the other thing. Again, keep working backwards. We are so overly stimulated and overwhelmed with the pace of life. All of us are moving so fast and constantly just being entertained that we fall into this trap. And I just believe this to be true. We begin pursuing life with a really low pain tolerance. We begin looking for the, the path with the least resistance. And if you're like, that ain't true, how many fast food places are you going to drive by today? It's very true. We oftentimes look for the path of the least resistance. And again, if we're not careful, church will no longer be about knowing Jesus and loving like him, which, friends, is very difficult. It's very difficult. But instead, we'll be about being entertained. And you, just like a ticket holder at a concert or a sporting event, will begin to criticize your team if it doesn't perform the way that you want it to. And you will start treating the church like many of you, like many of you treat the gym. You're going to be glad you came to church when I say this. Okay, now listen. This is how a lot of us treat the gym. We, We won't consistently get our butts out of bed and go. And when we do, when we do get to the gym, we barely give any effort to lift anything because it's too heavy. We don't listen to the trainer because he doesn't understand how busy and tired we are. And yet we wonder, we wonder, why don't we experience weight loss and muscle gain? So we blame the trainer and find a new one. This is some of the cycle that, now some of you have been like, I gave that up a long time ago, okay? But some of you have been on this cycle. You don't do what you know you should do, and yet you are confused why you're not seeing the results. And instead of owning it, you blame somebody else. Here's a good question. When was the last time somebody asked you what gym you go to? You know why nobody's asking? Because you don't look like you go to the gym. (laughs) Told you. Glad you came to church today. He's gym shaming me. A little bit. (laughs) Listen, there's a little bit of truth in that. You know why nobody asks you what church you go to? Because a lot of us don't look like we go to one. There's some truth in there for us. And so we get to Ephesians 4, and Paul's going to lean in here, and he goes, listen, this is not arena culture. You don't show up just to spectate. This is much different than that. And Ephesians 4 begins to push back. Paul begins to push back, and he goes, don't get this confused. This is where you begin working out your faith at church. So he starts out, verse 1, chapter 4, as prisoner for the Lord then, look what Paul says, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Now, other versions of the Bible, like King James, will will use the phrase, walk worthy. It's this idea that life is like taking a walk. And he wants you to walk in such a way that you give credit to the gospel, that as you walk, however that looks or supposed to look, people would say there's something different about how that person is walking through life. Paul goes, exactly, 
Exactly, because you are people who are chosen, who are alive and loved. So Paul goes, I want you to walk like it. I want you to walk like chapters 1, 2, and 3 in Ephesians are true. So walk like it. Well, how do you do that? He goes, glad you asked. Verse 2, here's how you walk like that. See, you're going to walk and be completely humble and gentle. You're going to be patient. You're going to bear with one another in love. You're going to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Because there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. And this is why it says, a little Old Testament reference from Paul, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. Now, these couple of verses here, this is loaded with so many things about how to do church well. But essentially, here's what I think Paul is saying. Good people make good churches. Good people make good churches, and good churches make good people. It goes back and forth. Good people make good churches, and good churches make good people. And you say, well, Paul, what kind of people? Paul goes, good people. People who live without arrogance, without harshness, without hurry, those are good people. These are the type of people that make good churches. The kind of people who are humble and gentle and patient and willing to bear with one another in love. That's a good church. What kind of people? Well, people who are going to make this united effort, that they're in this thing together, they realize they're better together. People are going to keep in mind that this whole thing called the church isn't about them. It's much bigger than that. And Paul says, yeah, listen, you're, you're going to make this effort for unity because you have so much in common. Go back to verse 4. Look, look how many things we have in common. Paul goes, listen, you, there is one body, there is one spirit, just as you were called to, one hope. When you were called, there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So seven times Paul uses the word one, and he goes, look how much we have in common. We have so much in common because of Jesus and what he has done. What did he do? Go back to chapters 1, 2, and 3. That if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, you've been chosen, you're alive, and you are loved. Paul goes, we have a lot in common. Therefore, we should be making every effort. We should make every effort, not just some effort or a little bit of effort, but every effort with others in the church and work for unity and peace. Now, I like this because this is real life. And, and listen, I'm all about prayer, and we need to pray more, and we need to spend time praying for God to do things that, that are even outside the realm of our control and our, like in our energy. But, but here's what Paul says. Unity won't happen by itself. You're going to have to work for it. It won't happen on its own. Unity is this hard-fought reality. And you're not going to be able to take the path that requires the least amount of effort. Because if you do, you'll never experience unity. So you're going to have to work hard. And I'm telling you, I feel like we are losing this kind of idea in our culture. I feel like we live in a culture that says, I don't want to do that. Why? It's too hard. It's too hard. I don't want to do hard things. So here's a good, I just think a good parenting lesson. Parents, you should make your kids do hard things. Why? Just because they're hard. Did you know that life is hard? Sometimes paying bills is hard. 
Having friendships is hard. Sometimes being married is hard. Any amens with that one? Life is tough. And I think one of the responsibilities for us as parents is to bring our children into that world. Now, I'm not saying throw them in the deep end of the pool, but I'm saying we should be working our way towards that. Sometimes we do hard things. Sometimes we do things we don't want to do, but we do them for the benefit of our good or for somebody else. And parents, if we're going to be asking our kids to do hard things, what do you think you should be doing? Hard things. I think you should be doing hard things, and I think you should be doing them in front of your kids. Why? Because sometimes we need to do the hard thing. I shared this a a couple of months ago, but I just got this, this feeling in me like, man, I wanted to really challenge myself. And so I decided that I was going to start getting up at 4.30 in the morning and going to the gym Monday through Friday. And you know what I found out? That's hard. It's harder than I thought. And I've been, I've been on pace now for a couple of months. And, and let me tell you, not one morning when the alarm goes off do I go, I love this. I absolutely love this. Praise God that he has given me the energy and the ability to go to the gym and work out my body. Not once, not once, but I do it. And I'm telling you, one of the reasons why I do it because there's some other guys at the gym that I know who are there who bring some healthy accountability. So I I show up and I start going through these workouts and I can't tell you how many times I have thought in the middle of a workout, why am I doing this? Why? I could be at home sleeping. I could be at home drinking coffee. Uh, you, know what I, you know what, I should stay home and just pray more. That's what I should do. I mean, just so many thoughts. And the worst day of the week for me is Wednesdays. I hate Wednesdays. You want to know why? Because Wednesday is leg day. Leg day is awful. It's awful. I mean, even the joke with the guys at the gym, I'm always trying to find an excuse of why I can't be there on Wednesdays because nothing for me burns like, like leg day. But I show up. Because there's some other guys there. And not just, I just show up and I don't do anything. We do some of the hardest workouts I've ever done in my life. We get to leg day and we get on the leg press. And, and, you know, the guy's there and he's like, listen, it's 15 reps. And you barely knock out 15 reps. And he says, hold it for five seconds. And you want to kill somebody. And you do five more reps. He says, hold it for five more seconds. You do five more reps. And you don't have it in you. And there's somebody there who's screaming at me going, don't you stop. You keep going. And everything inside of me wants to stop. But if nobody else was there, I wouldn't even start it. But you do it. Why? Because you quickly realize you're better together. You're better together. You can go farther when you're surrounded by people who are with you. It's the idea of church. The church is better because we're together. Paul knows this and he says, you should be fighting for unity. You should strive to be one. You'll go farther. You'll be healthier. And how you do that is to make every effort for the sake of unity. Keeps going, verse 7, but to each one of us grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is what it says, Old Testament reference from Psalm, Psalm 68. When he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. So Paul goes, look, we're fighting for unity. We're going to be better together. And God lives inside of you. And he's given each of you gifts. 
And the gifts that you have been given are not just to be used for yourself, but your gift is for the gift of the church. You've been gifted to be a gift to the church. This is where we start. So if you believe in Jesus and you're a follower of him, Paul goes, you have been gifted a gift. And that gift is now in turn to be used not for yourself, but for the sake of the family, for the sake of the church. Look what he says, verse 11. So Christ himself. Here's just some of the leadership gifts, apostles, the prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. He's given us these gifts to equip his people for works of service. He's not giving them just for you, for the sake of you. He's gifted you for the sake of others. Why? So that the body of Christ, so that the church is where we start. So the church may be built up. Until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature. So we're growing up. Attaining the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. And we will, then we will be no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown there and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Paul goes, listen, when we're better together and we're unified and we're using our gifts and we're growing up, we, we're far less likely to fall off the path. Verse 15, instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So Jesus goes, look, Jesus loves the church. Paul goes, Jesus loves the church, which makes sense because the church is called the bride of Christ. And Jesus loves her, his church so much that he gives his life for her. And here's what he does. He gifted his church with all of these different, you know, leadership abilities of teaching and prophets and apostles and evangelists. And he goes, listen, these gifts, when used, are supposed to produce a healthy, unified growing church. You've been gifted not to be a gift for yourself, but for the gift of others for the sake of the church. Verse 12, why? To equip, to equip his people for works of service so that the church may be built up. So Paul says again, if you're a follower of Jesus, you have been uniquely wired by God and gifted by the Holy Spirit. You've been given a gift. And some people will ask me, well, how do you find your gift? How do you know what you're gifted at? Here's how you find out. You just start serving somebody somewhere. And somebody along the way will, is eventually going to come up to you and say, you're really good at that. I wouldn't want to do that at all, but you're really good at it. Start serving somebody somewhere. If you don't know what your gift is because you're not serving anybody, if you jump in and start serving, you quickly will become aware of how God has gifted you. Some of you think you have the gift of singing. You should just come try out. Our band leader will let you know if you can sing or not. You can say God has gifted you all day, but he'll tell you if you can sing. Jump in and you start serving. This is the story of my life. This is how I bumped into to eventually becoming a pastor. I, I, I was going through my middle school and high school years. My dad passed away when I was 12. I was doing all these kind of things I shouldn't have been doing. Halfway through my junior year, I have no idea how or why, but God got a hold of my life. I became extremely tired doing all the things that, that I was doing. Fessed up to my parents, and I went from a huge public high school to a private school in the next town over. Went from hundreds and hundreds of kids in my graduating class to 21. 
And at the beginning of my senior year at this small private Christian school, I, I showed up for the first couple of weeks of my senior year, and the principal let me know, Matt, you've been, you've been voted in as vice president of the school. I didn't even know I was running. I said, when, when that happened? He says, we voted last week, and you're vice president. I said, okay. And one of the roles of the vice president was you had to speak at one of our chapels throughout the year, because our, our school, we had a chapel every Thursday. And when I quickly found out about the speaking gig, I went back to my principal. His name was Carl McKee. And I said, Mr. McKee, uh, we got a problem because I'm not speaking at chapel. And he said, yes, you are. And I said, I don't think you're hearing me. I'm not a public speaker. And I don't want to speak in front of people. I don't want to do this. I didn't even want to be vice president. I didn't run for it. And he pretty much said, I don't care. So I went to my student pastor and I said, how do you do this? How do you do this speaking thing? Like, let's work out something. And he said, well, you know, tell your story. Use your testimony. And so I got up in front of the chapel, a couple hundred kids in our middle school and high school. And, and so I, I did a, this chapel service. And there was other student pastors that were there as well from the community. And after that chapel service got done, these pastors came up. And they said, hey, we would love for you to speak at our student ministry. And I said, no. But then they would talk to my student pastor. And he said, yes. And so I went to this student ministry and to that student ministry, and I was just kind of sharing the same thing and using my story, talking about, you know, my life after my father passed away. And, and, and one day there was a, a phone call that came into my student pastor. It came from this place called Scotland School for Veterans. I knew it existed, but I never knew what it was about. And they called up my student pastor and they said, hey, we would love, we heard about Matt and we'd love for him to come speak at our chapel because our students are required to attend a church service. And he was like, yeah, game on. So my student pastor called me. He says, listen, this Sunday, you're going to go down there to Scotland School for Veterans. You're going to teach. And I just said, okay, I should ask more questions. And I didn't. And we roll in on Sunday to this massive campus, almost looks like a university campus. And I begin saying, hey, what is this place? And he said, this place is, is filled with kids who, has, who have lost their parents in war. And they have no place to go. And I remember thinking, I can't share my story here. I've lost one parent, not both. I'm going to go up there and, and share my story about losing my dad. These kids aren't going to care about that. They've lost everything. And he said, Matt, just, just share. Get up there and share. I walk into the chapel. There's like 400 kids in there. I'm freaking out. I'm just, whew. I remember just walking up onto the platform, and I share this story. And I remember just giving a call and just saying, hey, if you'd like to respond and believe in Jesus this morning, you can. I remember some kids coming up front, and I remember God saying to me as loud as I could hear, Matt, this is what you're doing. I said, okay. You want to know how you've been gifted? You got to jump in. You got to start serving somebody somewhere, and along the way, you will find that people will begin to say, I see something in you that's unique. I see how God has gifted you, but if you never get off and out of the seat, you're never going to find out what that thing is. And Paul says we are better together, that you have been gifted a gift, not so that you could sit on it, but that you could use it. And if you would choose to use it, you would make this church better. Verse 12, to equip his people for works of service. He has equipped us, again, not for the gift for ourselves, but for others. My job as a teacher is not to do all the work of the ministry. I don't do all the work. My job is to help train you in your giftedness and then you unleashing that giftedness on the world around you. 
So God's plan is you, full of the Holy Spirit, being equipped and empowered, and then being released to do the work of ministry yourself. And if you put all the work of the ministry on a few people, then eventually churches begin to close their doors. So if you're a follower of Jesus, especially you've been a follower of Jesus for a while, just listen to this for a sec. Christians oftentimes get confused about what discipleship is. And here's what I think. Christian discipleship is teaching people who God has called them to be so they can be used in the mission of God to love people. That's what discipleship is. And a lot of people think that Christian discipleship is like a sanitation process. You take dirty people from the world, you dip them in this spiritual Clorox, and then you set them aside in this sterile environment. And you were like, don't get dirty. We cleaned you up, we dipped you in this you know, Bible Clorox, and then you tell them all the rules about what it means to be a Christian. Okay, now that you've been cleaned, listen, no R-rated movies, no smoking, no dancing, no swearing, no drinking. And we begin defining discipleship by what you avoid, but friends, that's not discipleship. Paul doesn't get anywhere near that in these scriptures. Now, he talks about how to live But he's saying the goal of discipleship is is not to avoid all these things. You go back to John 13, John 15, here's what Jesus says. I know, I'll know if you are my disciples by how you love one another, by how you serve one another. See, Christian discipleship is teaching people to be like Jesus. And being like Jesus means being involved in the lives of people who don't know Jesus. And the beautiful thing is, is God has gifted you, not just to serve and to lead in the context of his church, but also in the lives of people who you do life with, your spouse and your kids and your coworkers, and the people you know from, from just everything that you're all about during the week, God has gifted you. When we teach behavior modification, We become inward focused. I'm not anti-Bible study. I'm not anti-memorizing scripture. I hope you memorize the whole Bible, but that doesn't mean you're a great disciple of Jesus. That's not the end goal. If those things help you live out the the mission that God has called you to through your gifting, then by all means, get in the scriptures. Read the Bible more. Pray until you can pray. Do all of those things because I think they will equip you better, but that's not the end goal in and of itself. If you just attend a Bible study your whole Christian faith, and never live out the giftings that God has called you to and love somebody, then Jesus would say you're not his disciple. Discipleship is living out your faith. And Paul says it starts at church. And I want to see Jesus released in and through you in this church family and in our community. That should be the goal of our church. Some of you who are followers of Jesus, you've just been sitting too long. You've been sitting too long. And that's what you do in arena, but this is the church. And when you sit too long, here's what starts happening. You start complaining about what the church is and what it isn't, how it's not meeting your needs. Meanwhile, you've been gifted by God to be a gift to this church, but you won't use it and you won't leverage it for the sake of others. You could walk around and if you see something that's wrong, you could try to fix it because God has probably gifted you in such a way that you have what it takes. I know there's many of you, you, 
You've got a long list about things you're concerned about, about this church. I'm just telling you, our leadership's probably concerned about it too. What is that? Whatever's on your list of changes, I can guarantee you that our, our list as leadership is longer. But you gotta hear this. Pastors are not the only ones who make the church better. God doesn't run all his power through one or a few people. He runs it through you too. And if you see a need, that might be because God has gifted you to meet it. And maybe you save yourself a phone call or an email to somebody on leadership here and you just go after it. Take care of it. Make it better. Jesus has filled you with his spirit. He has filled you with his spiritual gifts and whereby you experience him the most when you're working that out. So you start serving. You start walking around this place. You start going, hey, how can, I, how can I help? And Paul and Peter and John and a bunch of other New Testament writers would say this. I mean, if you're not serving, if you're not working out the giftedness that God has given to you, if you're not helping somebody, if you're not loving somebody somewhere, then you're not as close to Jesus as you think. If church is just a place that you clock in and you clock out, Paul goes, you don't get it. You've been chosen, you're alive, and you are loved. Now you should walk like that's true. You should be exercising the gifts that God has given to you. And the place we start is church. It's church. Think, think of it like this. Um, my wife and I, Vanessa and I, tomorrow we're gonna celebrate our 18 year anniversary. That's good, yeah? It's not been all kicks and giggles. You know that if you're married. Nobody clap for that. <laughs> you know that. If you're a married person, you know this. There are seasons of your marriage that are amazing and great. It's easy to show up. The work is light. And then there's moments you have to go back to the day that you made that commitment to your spouse and you sweat, and you bleed. And sometimes the only thing you can do is show up. And you're not sure if you have what it takes. You're not sure if you can forgive. But you find a way through the help of God, through your faith, through the brothers and sisters of Christ around you who say, don't you do it. You keep going. You got one more rep. Hey, I heard you say that. That doesn't sound like you. Hey, I want to remind you about what Jesus has done for you in your behalf. Hey, I want to remind you this is not all on your spouse. You've got to own some of this too. Maybe it's time for counseling. It's not always easy. And what I appreciate about Vanessa and I's relationship that over 18 years she keeps showing up. We keep trying for the sake of unity to be better for one another because we realize we're better together. Let me just ask you, if the church is the bride of Christ, how you doing in your relationship with her? Come on, just be honest. You can blame other people and you can blame the pastors and you can blame the leader, but I'm just telling you, what can you own? Do you love her? Would your actions and your words line up that you're crazy about her? Do you say 
beautiful things about her? Do you build her up? Do you hang tough and keep showing up even when life gets difficult? Do you see how the church, how she's worth fighting for? Do you see her in such a way that you would hear the words of Paul and go, I'm going to make every effort to fight for unity with the people in this church because I see the beauty of it. I see this church as much more than just me and my needs. I see that I've been gifted to serve her and to love her well, so I'll do it. Here's a good question. Would you give your life for her? Because Jesus did. And sometimes I even wonder myself if I view the church the same way that he does. In fact, did you know that if you come back next week, the whole leverage for men and how we lead in our role is by looking at how Jesus loved the church? It's easy to be complacent. It's easy to move on, to blame others. You know what's hard? You know what's gritty? You know what's messy? You know what's painful sometimes? Is when you make every effort in using the giftedness that God has given to you to build up and to edify and to encourage the church because I need your gift and you need mine and we do better when we're on the same team it's not too hard you could make a decision to jump in deeper you could go to base camp in January you could sign up for rooted and get into a group you could email uh, here at the, the Niwot campus, Amanda Rurabaugh, Fred campus. You could email me, and we'll get you plugged in. But you know what the truth is? It's your choice, not mine. And many of us are one choice away from making this place better. To become more gentle, more patient, more humble. To bear with one another, exercising our gifts that we may walk like people who have been chosen and made alive and loved. The people who know, know nothing about Jesus would walk into this place and go, whoa, you've been working out? I have. I've been working out my faith. And if you're a follower of Jesus, Paul says it starts at church. Let me pray for us. Father, this morning, I pray that you would help us to see your bride as you see her, that we would be followers of you, that would get outside of ourselves, that we may be able to see the bigger picture, that you love us and that you've gifted us for the sake of your church, to serve her well, to honor her and respect her, to love her. And I pray that our actions and our words would show that to be true that we would be the good people, people who are humble and patient and gentle, people that are bear, willing to bear with one another, to forgive each other, to slow down, to be present, to encourage each other, to remind each other that the church is worth it. It's worth the hard work. Pray that you would encourage those this morning who find themselves in difficult places at a difficult time. Pray that they would be able to see 
But there is a day coming that is much better than this. And yet in the meantime, they would jump into the mess of this thing that you call the church, that we might be able to do life together, to be for one another. But in the hard times that we would say to each other, don't you do it. You got one more. It's not time to give up. Because Jesus, uh, he didn't give up on you. Father, we love you. We thank you for Jesus. It's why we're here today. It's why we've gathered together. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.